Welcome to Reliability Leader, a podcast about how leaders make organizations that create reliable technology. Well, hello, everybody. I hope everyone's doing great out there. So, so much of what I talk about with reliability is electromechanical. You know, it's the hardware. But software is a tremendously influential aspect of product reliability right it's controlling the electromechanical components it's what our the customers or users interface with but what's so interesting from a reliability perspective is how different software reliability is to electromechanical reliability some of the most obvious factors are that software doesn't wear out, right? Uh, software doesn't really have manufacturing in variability. So what is it that drives software reliability then? If it doesn't have variability in manufacturing and it doesn't wear out, <clears throat> how can it not perform consistently? Well, the primary element that drives whether or not a piece of software is worked going to work or not work at any given moment, the hazard rate, has to do with the combination and variability of inputs. And these inputs aren't just from the user. The inputs are also with everything else that's going on in the system. Softwares don't operate entirely independently on a piece of hardware, unless maybe it's a piece of firmware controlling you know, servos or something. Um, and that's the only point of that control board it's sharing a lot of resource and it's operating on top of other pieces of hardware so the the combinations of possible states and combined states over time is just about infinite and we have to figure out what is the likelihood that the combinations that are going to cause an issue will occur that's quite a challenge so what's interesting about software reliability is that the major area of analysis that drives prediction is actually not the software itself. It's the methodology it was created with, right? That's really interesting and unusual. So what I mean by that is, was the software created using XYZ standard methodology? Was it debugged using this specific debugging protocols. So what's an example of one of these? One of these can be a debugging protocol that goes through and looks at the software and sees what is the uh, what code was created that is used at a very low frequency. And it can even start with this by looking at the way the code was created, especially with object-oriented code. You can find patterns in its creation that will indicate that there's certain aspects that are very likely to be unused. Well, just because it's unused, you think that wouldn't be a big driver for reliability, but it is. Because in development, when it's tested and, you know, run 
in a higher level system as it's built up and integrated into whatever the complete system is. It's on, on its actual release operating system and interacting with the other elements. The lines of code that aren't used frequently are the most dangerous because you are least likely in your testing, which is limited hours compared to the field hours, to see them interact, to see them be a part of sequences. So those effectively are the little minds, you know, these minefields of unused lines of code that when are stepped on, there's a probability that they're going to behave in a way or make something else behave in a way that you didn't expect. So it's these this evaluation of how it was created that may helps with the prediction, which is so dramatically different than evaluating for hardware, you know, how it was made, what variabilities are there and how it's made, and how do those variabilities affect performance. Evaluating the variabilities in use, how do those variabilities in use affect performance? The variabilities in environment. You know, how do those environment variabilities affect performance? Those three things are always the focus for hardware. We often use as a teaching tool or kind of a tool for explanation or discovery the bathtub curve for hardware. You know, and the bathtub curve has three distinct phases. It has that phase that's most influenced by quality. The first phase is called the infant mortality phase. You have the use life phase, which is often shown as a flat line. So you have the early part, that's this high failure rate that comes down as because quality defects tend to show themselves early. And those components that have the defects will fall out of the population. And you know, then you have in the middle part where usually we kind of for a complex electromechanical system say we have random failures. And you know, it's quite an assumption because you know different failure modes have very distinct distributions. But for a complex hardware system, um, it ends up looking kind of as a random hazard rate. And that's because when you overlap so many different subassembling component fail, you know, failure distributions together, um, it starts to look like a static level. I always make the analogy of if you were to look at a, you know, waveform of my voice, it's a very distinct pattern. You know, I have, you know, specific highs and lows and where I emphasize words and how I pause. Um, but if this was a cocktail party, you would hear so many different types of uh, talking patterns that effectively would just be a static level of chatter that you really could just measure with a simple thing of decibel level. And you'd probably use the decibel level to assess what's going on in the party, right? If it suddenly dropped very low, you would say, oh, that's probably when the food was served. And you might have a threshold failure rate where if it gets above this level, somebody's going to call the cops. And that would be the best way to measure what's going on there because there's so many specific um, you know, distributions going on together. Then the third part of a hardware um, bathtub curve is where the failure rate begins to increase and continue to increase. And this is because at this point, you're hitting wear out failure modes. And these are very predictable. And, you know, there's a effectively some degradation relationship between a stress and a failure mode. And more and more the population is going to experience it as time goes on. So you end up with that curve that looks like a bathtub. Software curves look absolutely nothing like this because for the reasons we said. There's no manufacturing variability driving the first part of the bathtub curve and there's no wear out driving the end part. So what do they look like? Are they just flat? No, they're not. Um, there's many different types, but one that 
is common, you could say, at a high level for a complex system, a complex piece of software running on with multiple other, you know, operating programs, you know, working on top of an operating system would be one that is a, you know, downward slope that is sawtooth. And a sawtooth being that you have these spikes that go straight up that are, you know, not too high and then they come down on a slope line and then in a period of time later there's another spike and that comes down on a slope line and what you're witnessing is the early debugging phases is the reason why you have that over that overall downward slope and that's when you release a new piece of software of course there's timeline and schedule pressure so they may have not finished you know, fully evaluating it and making improvements. And that will occur as you, you know, at the products released. And these are fixes. You know, this is why you update software on a kind of somewhat frequent basis is because they are releasing fixes. And each one of these fixes will bring down the failure rate. So why is there a sawtooth? Why are there these upticks that happen? Well, those are new features that are being added often in expanding the software. And even a simple feature add can create, you know, very noticeable failure modes because it's a new element interacting with other elements. And these other elements may not be performing fantastically, but they very infrequently fully line up to cause an observable issue. And all you need is this one other piece to be the catalyst to make it visible. So you introduce new functionality, the failure rate spikes a little bit, and then again, you're introducing those little fixes to you know, address those new failure rates. At the same time, you're also continuing to address the others. And that curve keeps sloping downwards. And you have the sawtooth every time you enter a new feature. This, you, know, you might get a spike up and then you work it back down. And then this will eventually be a very low failure rate that is very consistent and you're not installing new upgrades or new features because there's an entirely new software that's being developed that will replace it in its entirety and unfortunately that sometimes you know starts you back up at a high failure rate um, one of the greatest examples of this i don't know if you recall is with microsoft um, who i feel very opposite about than i feel about apple which i like apple very much um, and I don't know if you remember uh, Windows XP. This was, I don't know, Windows XP, I don't know, what was that, like 15 years ago or something? Um, Windows XP, um, by the end of its, towards the end of its life, was a fantastic operating system. It was so stable. Rarely had issues. You, know, you didn't get that blue screen of death where it locked up. Um, it was very uh, functional and, and, you know, versatile. Um, and so what Microsoft did is, you know, they weren't doing real upgrades to it. They were spending a lot of time developing a new operating system. That new operating systems was Windows Vista. Now, when you go to purchase a computer, um, generally, you know, if it's not an Apple, it has uh, Windows installed on it, right? And it's usually the latest version of Windows that comes with the computer. Now, when Windows Vista came out to replace uh, Windows XP, it was a disaster. It was an operating system that was, you know, it was almost like you went back 50 years, right? Actually, I shouldn't even say that. It's, you know, operating system 50 years ago were far more stable, but it just was horrible. It, it's so many standard pieces of other, you know, application software didn't run on it and make it crash frequently. It didn't take much to get it locked up. Um, this, in fact, was so bad. I still can't believe this is even true. It was so bad 
that when you went to purchase a computer or laptop, let's say at you know, an electronics store, they would give you the option to not have Windows Vista. They would install Windows XP on for you, the old operating system, because they knew they would have an easier time selling a computer and not having people bring it back if it didn't have Windows Vista on it. So I think that that's an interesting example of that software reliability curve you know, I described, the one that has a downward slope and the sawtooth you know, element to it. And, you know, whenever I show that curve in any education class, I always laugh and I say, look, you know, when you see the bottom of this curve in the far right side, that's Windows XP. And then they fully restarted at the you know top again, got rid of that very stable system um, and started you back at extremely high, you know, failure rate again. And it's, you know, they ended up actually Windows Vista really never recovered. Um, they ended up replacing it, I think, with Windows 10 after that. I don't recall. But, um, you know, it. It, it really can follow that, you know, something like an operating system that's, you know, complex and has lots of other, um, you know, applications running on it that are very variable. You know, I mean, Microsoft doesn't have any input to how they work. I mean, they can decide if they're allowed to or not, but really, you know, they're not involved in the debugging process or stability process. And actually, what's also far more difficult is they're not even involved in the hardware development. You know, their Windows operating systems will be running on hardware that's not even created yet, you know, that'll be made in a year or two. So that's very difficult, which is actually one of the other things I love about Apple is that um, that's why they've never allowed their operating system to run on other hardware, because they're aware from a reliability perspective, they have to be developed together to reduce the variabilities, the combinations of operations and applications that uh, can drive random failure, you know, random failure rate in life. So uh, that's a little bit about software reliability and how it is so different than hardware reliability. Um, it's probably also important to mention where the two intersect. Um, I find that reliability growth programs are probably one of the best tools to have in a product development program to see how the software truly operates with the hardware. Um, because software is typically developed, you know, in isolation with simulation is very easy to do to have that team off on their own doing their thing. And the hardware team is using whatever software that they've either brewed up or are pieces from historical software. And reliability growth is really the first time you may be bringing the entire system to operate, you know, on its own independently as a final version. And it's quite often you will find issues that cannot really be associated to hardware issues and cannot be associated with software issues, but they're simply interactions. And that's why also in allocation models, I always have a budget for interactions. And uh, this can be very useful in making good predictions. Uh, and that's usually evident in a reliability growth program. So I hope everybody's doing great out there and we'll talk again soon.